This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. We now invite Sister Faith to read the scripture today from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 27. You can take out your Bibles or you can refer to the screen above for the text. Uh, We'll be reading from Luke chapter 19, verse 1 to 27 today. Uh, So as mentioned, you can follow along your Bibles or just look at what's on the screen. Uh, Verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, Here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray for your word to be impacting our hearts once again, that we listen to your word, uh, obedient and wanting to truly be faithful followers of Jesus. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Remember talking to a friend who belonged to a large church, growing church. He told me that he was worried about his church. I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, your church is large and it's growing. What is there to worry about? And he said, well, he was worried because he comes to church on a Sunday and he sees many people who make no effort to serve God in any way. There's no effort to evangelize, no effort to do anything at all for God in their lives. And he said, literally, they just turn up on Sundays. They want to have a good time, have meals, make friends, and then go home. And that's the sum total of their Christian life. I want us to consider for a moment my friend's observations and ask the question, should he be worried about these people? Should he be worried when he sees lots of his uh, people coming to church, doing nothing to serve God, to evangelize, or to do anything at all for Christ, and just turn up and have a good time on Sundays? Should we be worried for people like that? And should we be worried for people like ourselves if we are like that? Well, today we begin with the story of a real person who lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, it says. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, we've already seen that uh, in this uh, middle section of the book of Luke, Jesus had been making his journey from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, right? And as he makes this journey, we see that as we come now to chapter 19, Jesus is actually really close to the end of his journey to Jerusalem. He's now in Jericho. And as you can see in this map, Jericho is just very, very close to Jerusalem. It's just on the north of Jerusalem. And he meets this man, Zacchaeus. We're told two key things about Zacchaeus, apart from the fact that he's short. We're told that he's a chief tax collector. Now, in the ancient world, this uh, word tax collector is synonymous and emblematic for sinner, right? But he wasn't just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. So he probably administered a large area of uh, the region to collect money. He didn't just do it by himself, he probably had a team of people. It was probably like a region from say Katong to Pasaris or something, right? It was a big region and he was like the chief tax collector. So in many ways, we are to look at him and to see him as like the chief sinner, right? He's like the chief sinner, he's not just a sinner, he's the chief sinner. But also we read that he was wealthy. Now, this word wealthy, we've come across very, very often in the book of Luke. Most recently, in Luke chapter 18, which is a chapter just before, we were introduced to this guy, remember? This guy came to Jesus and he wanted to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. And then, this man, Jesus said, must sell everything, give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Same word that describes the tax collector, he was very wealthy. But he was not the only person that we've been introduced to in the book of Luke that uses this word to describe him. Earlier on, in Luke chapter 12, there was the ground of a certain rich man that produced a good crop. Okay, Same word. 
And again, Luke chapter 16, there was the rich man who was dressed in purple, fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. And outside his gate was a beggar named Lazarus. Now, it's interesting because when you consider these three people who had the same description of them in the past, wealthy or rich, the rich fool, the rich man, and the rich man Lazarus, all three of these people, as we looked in the earlier parts of Luke, every one of them, in the end of the day, they all were condemned to hell and they were lost and they were judged by God. And so as we are now introduced to this guy, Zacchaeus, doesn't seem very promising, right? He's the chief sinner. And not only is he the chief sinner, he's also very rich. So what's going to happen to Zacchaeus? You know, is he going to end up like these other three people who are also really rich and were all condemned by Jesus? Well, let's move on and see. So Zacchaeus, he's very short. He can't see Jesus. So he runs up, climbs the sycamore tree. Then when Jesus reaches that spot, he looks up and says to Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. Now, this is really surprising, right? Because of all the people in the crowd that day, Jesus should pick Zacchaeus and say, come down, I need to stay at your house immediately. Now, if that's surprising, Zacchaeus' reaction is even more surprising because indeed, he came down at once immediately, and welcome Jesus gladly. Now, from what we understand so far, just in these few verses, Zacchaeus came to be a big capo, right? He just wanted to know who Jesus was. It's not as if he opened his house up on Airbnb for Jesus to come and stay. But here we see he welcomes him gladly, immediately. There was a heart reaction, a heart response to Jesus, and there was an action response in welcoming him into his house. Hospitality was shown. And so, first thing we see about Zacchaeus, he welcomes and receives Jesus. But then the crowd, their response is quite different from Zacchaeus' response. When this, they saw it, the crowd saw it, they all grumbled, right? He has gone in to be the guest of a house who is a sinner, of a man who is a sinner, and they all grumbled. The whole crowd grumbled against Jesus. Now, if Zacchaeus is described by the word rich, then this word that we've seen here, muttering or grumbling, is a word that we associate with the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Luke chapter 15, this is exactly the way the Pharisees and tax collectors grumbled and muttered against Jesus when he did the very same thing, when he welcomed sinners and eats with them. And so here we see immediately that the crowd, which initially was very enthusiastic to Jesus in their midst, they start turning against him, right? They begin to grumble and begin to mutter against Jesus. So here on one hand, we have Zacchaeus welcoming and receiving Jesus. And now the crowd, in a way, are turning against Jesus. They are denying and defying Jesus. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, taken by themselves, what Zacchaeus does is quite extraordinary. But taken together, they are really amazing, right? 
First and foremost, he says and makes a pledge to Jesus, I'm going to give 50%, half of everything I own. Now, in the ancient world for the Jews, if they gave 20%, that was considered to be very, very generous already. Now, imagine for those of you here who have possessions, if you collected all your possessions, would you give 50% of half of everything you, you've got to the poor? That would be a huge ask, right, for all of us. I mean, 50% of everything we have to be given away. But that's what Zacchaeus commits to do. And Zacchaeus, obviously, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, we presume he has cheated some people then, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, according to the law, you're only supposed to really pay back what you stole or cheated and give back one-fifth more, 25%, oh, sorry, 20% more. My math's not so good today, right? But Zacchaeus actually pledges to give four times the amount of what he cheated out of people. So together we see this response from Zacchaeus is really amazing, right? He welcomes Jesus gladly. He gives half of his possessions to the poor. He pays back four times the amount of anything that he's cheated from anyone. Now, here we see that Zacchaeus is really behaving in a really amazing way, right? In response to Jesus coming to him. Jesus said to him, <clears throat> Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's very important for us to pay attention to exactly what Jesus says. Salvation has come to this house not because Zacchaeus has done something or saved himself, but rather because the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Salvation has come because Jesus has come to save Zacchaeus. But what makes Zacchaeus different from the other three rich people that we saw earlier on in Luke who are not saved? Did Jesus not come and seek and save them as well? Why were they not saved? I think the important thing is because of the response that they gave to the Savior, right? Jesus is the Savior who came to seek and save the lost. But what we see from Zacchaeus is very, very positive in a response of faith in Jesus as Savior. He received and welcomed Jesus. His saving faith was shown in action in terms of his pledges of giving 50% of what he had. He shows a transformed life, right, from somebody initially who presumed was this sinner who was living his life from riches and money and acquiring wealth to someone who gave money away and was willing to let it go after he met Jesus Christ. Now, this is a huge contrast to the other three people, the other three rich people, who in the way that they treated their wealth showed that they actually did not receive Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. So last week, we read about the rich ruler he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. He was very sad, but he did not follow Jesus. He did not welcome Jesus. He did not receive Jesus in the end. Again, the man, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man saw Lazarus outside his gate day after day while he lived in luxury, but yet he never did it, lifted a finger to help 
Lazarus. He was not generous with his wealth. Again, the rich fool, he stored up riches for himself, but was not rich towards God. And so the Savior Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but none of these people were able to use their wealth or let go of their wealth in faith to receive and welcome Jesus Christ. Now this is very important for us because Zacchaeus shows us that a rich person can be saved by putting their faith in Jesus, but that faith is shown in action and transformed lives. So the question that we kind of like have to apply to ourselves today is, have we really received Jesus, our Lord and Savior, right? Jesus came to, seek the, the, uh, to save the lost, but we as the lost, have we responded to Jesus in faith? In faith in the way that we treat our possessions. So let's consider a moment Lazarus and the other three rich men. And what distinguishes Lazarus, sorry, Zacchaeus from the other three rich men? Are we generous with our money for, to those in genuine need? Are we rich towards God with our money and contribute towards his work? Or do you store up your wealth only for yourself and your family and your own luxuries and your own enjoyment? Each of these questions, in a sense, is the thing that distinguishes Zacchaeus from the other three, three rich people. In a sense, which shows the faith that Zacchaeus has in Jesus Christ and welcoming and receiving him. Because Zacchaeus' saving faith is shown in action, right? Active faith and a transformed life. Whereas for these three other rich people, they show that they have no faith because of the way they, they treat their possessions, which prevent them from following Jesus. So this first part, again, shows us just how important it is that faith is reflected in action, right? But that theme of faith showing itself in action doesn't end with Zacchaeus. Verse 11. While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. <clears throat> now, verse 11 is really important for us to understand this parable that Jesus is going to tell because it tells us the context of the parable. Without understanding the context of the parable, we will misunderstand what the parable is saying. Now, this context is actually three parts, right? While they were listening to this, who are they? Who are the crowd or the people who are listening to Jesus saying this parable? Well, first and foremost, the they are the mixed crowd of people. There was Zacchaeus, there was the disciples, there was the crowd of people who were starting to mutter and grumble against Jesus. They were the crowd. They were the context. While they were listening to this, what was Jesus speaking about? What was the this that Jesus was speaking about? Jesus was speaking about him being the Savior coming to seek and to save the lost. And lastly, the last context is the fact that he's very, very close to Jerusalem now. He's just in Jericho, just the north of Jerusalem, right? I suppose like JB in Singapore. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to come at once. Perhaps they thought that when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the kingdom of God would arrive. Right? So that's the context. There was a mixed crowd. 
Jesus was speaking about seeking and saving the lost and that they were near Jerusalem and people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear when Jesus arrived. Okay, so that's the context and he says the parable. He begins the parable. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and to return. Now we don't kind of understand what's happening here. What is happening here? What man of noble birth is going to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return? Well, for the original audience that Jesus is speaking to, this would be totally familiar to them. Because they were Jews and they were living under Roman occupation. And so the kings of the Jews, like King Herod of that day, would need to go to Rome to have their coronation to be crowned Roman emperor. Uh, it's not crowned by the Roman emperor, sorry. And so imagine, right, they have to make this journey from Jerusalem to Rome, right, to be crowned and given the coronation as the king of the Jews, the Jewish king or the Jewish governor. As you can see, this is a long journey, right? It's not as if like, you know, you get on your airplane, you fly there two hours and then you get your coronation and come back. This, this will take a while to go from Jerusalem to Rome, get your crown and then come back. And so what Jesus is saying here, the people in the crowd could clearly understand. Okay, we understand this king goes away to get this crown and comes back again. But who is Jesus really referring to? Who is this man of noble birth who goes to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return? Chapter 17, Jesus had already described what is going to happen to him, right? He talks about how, again, people were expecting the kingdom of God to come. But he said, no, he must first suffer many things and be rejected. And then there will be these days. And then the Son of Man will come again like, like a lightning that day, right? So if you understand what Jesus is saying in this parable based on what he's already said in Luke chapter 17. Jesus is the man of noble birth. Right? Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus, in a sense, is going to a distant country to have himself appointed king. He's going to suffer, be rejected, die, rise and ascend to heaven. In the interim, there'll be like days, right? Days where people just go on living their normal life only for the, Jesus to return in his day like lightning. And so what Jesus is saying is, he is the master who goes to receive his kingdom. He is the, the topic or the main person in the parable. So while Jesus is going away to receive his kingship, after he dies, after he ascends, goes to heaven to receive his kingship, during the interim, during that waiting time, he then says what is to happen. This master calls 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minors. Put this to work, he said, until I come back. So 10 servants are given 10 minors. Minors are like money. The money is like three months wages for a normal person. So it's not an insignificant amount. It's still like worth something, right? So each of the servants is given three months wages to put to work. Now what exactly does he mean? when the master says, put this money to work, or in like uh, the ESV translation, to engage in business. What sort of business or work is the master having in mind? Does he want them to go to Silicon Valley to start up an IT startup or start up like Tesla, or maybe a bank like DBS, 
or maybe go to New Zealand and start a dairy farm? What sort of business does the master have in mind? I think that's where the context comes in. Because the way I understand it is, the context is there were a mixed crowd of people listening to Jesus talking about seeking and saving the lost. So what he's referring to here is, he's addressing his servants, right? The disciples. The disciples are listening to this. And Jesus is speaking about seeking and saving the lost. And what he's saying is, while he's away, while he's going away to receive his kingship, he wants his disciples, his servants, to so to speak, to engage in the business that the master was doing before, to engage in the master's business of seeking and saving the lost. Now, this context is very important, right? Because it's not just any business or any work they're meant to do, but to engage in the master's business is the master's work, which I think at a minimum is anything to do with serving the master Jesus, but especially in seeking and saving the lost. And so, if you look at this diagram then, while the servants or the disciples wait for the King Jesus to return, they are to be engaging in the master's business or the master's work. Verse 14 then goes on to say, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. Now, I won't bore you with ancient history, but apparently this happened before. The Jews sometimes didn't like their kings and they would kind of like send people to go to Rome to petition the Roman emperors to say, we don't want this guy to be king, right? Can you not appoint him? So what's happening here is again something that the ancient audience would understand very well. Now the subjects are different from the servants. The servants belong to the household, the master. The subjects or the citizens are the people like outside the, the household, they're the kind of like just the normal run-of-the-mill folk who are just living in the countryside. They are the citizens, right? And so who are these subjects and the citizens who hate the master Jesus and don't want Jesus to be our king? Again, the context helps us to understand this, right? Jesus was talking to a mixed crowd. And within the mixed crowd were the people who were beginning to mutter and grumble against Jesus, coming to seek and save the lost. And these were the people then, in a sense, who hate and don't want Jesus to be king. So now we are like given different groups of people, right? Jesus, the, the king, he's gone away to get his kingship, his crown to be coronated, given his coronation. So disciples are told to work and engage in business, the master's business while he's away. But at the same time, there's a group of people who don't want Jesus to return as king. They hate the king. They don't want him to be king. Verse 15 to 19. Jesus, the king, returns. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained from it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Wow, that's really good, right? 1,000% return. He started at 1, ended up 10, right? Well done, my good servant, his master replied. You, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner earned five more. Well, that's really good too. 500% return. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Now what Jesus is really saying here 
is that when he comes back, there's this time of accounting, time of reckoning about what the servants did while he was away, right, in the waiting time in the interim. And here we are given two example servants, the first two servants. And both have been seen to be trustworthy or faithful in the earthly business, the master's business while he's been away. And because of that, they are now given and entrusted with kingdom responsibilities in the kingdom when Jesus comes. They participate in the kingdom when Jesus comes. So what happens is, you can see it in this diagram, the faithful and trustworthy servants are commended as good and they are rewarded with participation in the kingdom and, and responsibilities in the kingdom when the king comes. Now, I want us to notice something really interesting, which is very easy for us to miss as we look at this. He says, well done, my good, and, my good servant, his master replied. You've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Now, why does, uh, why does Jesus put this little phrase in his parable, right? It seems as if the master is saying that the interim period the time between the master leaving to receive his coronation as king to the return, that time is a very small matter, right? Compared to what the people receive when the kingdom comes, when the king comes, when the king returns. It's almost as if, like what he's saying is, our life on this earth now, today, all the things that we think are really important, our possessions, our work, the time, the gifts that we have, these are all really small matters compared to when the king comes and gives you kingdom participation and kingdom authority. That is the very big matter, right? That is the very big matter. So it's kind of something that is really like a reversal of everything we think of, right? We think this world is all there is and it's really important. But the king and Jesus, what he's saying is this is a very small matter, our lives today, compared to the entry into the kingdom which we will receive if we are good and faithful and trustworthy before him. So that's really important, right? If Jesus were to arrive tomorrow, would he say to you or to me, good servant, you've been faithful and trustworthy with the life that you have, and you've been about going about doing the master's business, going about the king's business. Now, we then are introduced to the main character of the parable, because this character takes up the most space of the parable, all the verses, right? Almost a half the verses are, doing, are, are, are focusing on this last servant. So this another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it away in a piece of cloth. This guy has done no action at all, right? There's no action on his part at all. He's just taken the cloth, put it into a piece of, uh, of uh, handkerchief and put it into his cupboard or his drawer and he's left it there until the master returns. Not only that, it seems like uh, his action is also mirrored by his attitude, right? His attitude is the same as action. I was afraid of you, he said, because you are a hard man, and you take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. He has no action, and his attitude towards the master is very, very negative. Like he's disgruntled, he's distrustful, he's almost disgusted with the master, right? Look what he says, you take out what you did not put in, you reap what you did not sow. It's almost like 
the master is exploiting him, right? It's like the master is taking advantage of him and stealing from his labors. And this is very opposite to what we've seen earlier on, right? Zacchaeus received Jesus gladly. Right? He was delighted with Jesus. He rejoiced in Jesus in his heart. And that led to action. But here, this servant, he's not delighted with Jesus at all. He doesn't rejoice. He's not glad about the king. He's really, really distrustful, disgruntled, and disgusted by the master. And as a result, he thinks that this, the master is a really, really bad master. But that's not the reality of what we've seen so far. Because in the first two servants, the master was not like this. He was very generous, right? The guy, 1,000% return. He now got 10 cities in the, in the big kingdom of God, in the big kingdom of the, the, the master, to administer and to have authority over the other guy. He returned five minors. He was given five cities. And so really, what this other servant says is not true about the master. It's not true about Jesus. So how does the master then respond in the time of accounting? How does he respond when he returns to receive his reward, so to speak, from the king? The master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? So Jesus, the king, sees that this man's excuse is not convincing, right? He sees it as a, an excuse. It's like the typical, like, uh, my dog ate my homework story. He, he says, look, if what you says is true, if, if you really feared me, then all the more you would you would respond by making sure you got something for me, right, at the end of the day. It's like saying, you know, I'm very scared of you, but I did nothing. And so he doesn't accept his reasoning. He doesn't accept his excuse. So what does the, the king now say? Then he said to those standing by in verse 24, take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minors. Sir, they said, he already has 10. The master replied, I tell you that everyone, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, this, another servant then ends up with less than nothing, right? He has less than nothing. But the question is, this is the $1 million question is, what happens to him? Does he receive the kingdom of God? Well, we see here that this servant is branded evil, unfaithful, and untrustworthy. But what is his final destination, right? What is his final fate? That's the, the really important thing that we want to know. If you look at Luke chapter 19, it's actually paralleled by Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents, right? So instead of minor, Matthew looks at it and talks about talents, right? And you can see there's a significant parallel between Luke 19 and Matthew chapter 25. Then he said to those standing by, take his minor from, away from him and give it to the one who already has 10 minors. Matthew chapter 25 verse 28. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. Verse 26. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. 
But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Matthew chapter 25, verse 29. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. For whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And so, in Matthew chapter 25, it actually ends with an additional verse, right? And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, if we look at the book of Matthew, where it's probably the same parable that Jesus told, we see that the outcome for the evil, untrustworthy, unfaithful servant is actually to be judged by the master, right? To have no place in the kingdom of God. This person is outside of salvation. Verse 27 brings our section to a close today. But to those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So what happens is, here we see that those in the crowd who hate Jesus and don't want Jesus to be king, they will also be judged when the king returns. Now this is really shocking, right? Because what we see here is at the end of the day, we're introduced to three sections, right? Three different sorts of people. Faithful servant, unfaithful servant, and those who hate the king. But at the end of the day, when the king returns, when Jesus returns, the servants, the disciples who are unfaithful or untrustworthy end up in the same place as those who hate the king. Now why is that? That seems very extreme, right? Even the people in the parable say, but hey, it looks a bit unfair, right? The guy already has 10, why you give him one more? Why is this happening? Well, I think at the end of the day, it shows a response to Jesus, right? So Jesus is the saviour who comes to seek and save the lost. So to have faith in Jesus, saving faith means active faith and a transformed life, right? You see Zacchaeus changing his attitude to money, to being generous, and to paying back what he owes, plus more. Now we see Jesus as the king. To follow the king and to serve the king means that you need to do the work or to engage in the work of the king, to do the master's business, right? There's no point saying, Lord Jesus, right? Or Lord Jesus is my Lord, or Jesus is my king, but you don't obey your king and serve your king and do what the king tells you to do. So at the end of the day, what we see here are Jesus is the saviour and we need to respond with saving faith. And we see that through active faith and transformed life. Jesus is the king. If we follow the king, it means doing the king's business. So in conclusion, sometimes I do uh, marriage counselling and sometimes you meet people who say, oh, you know, I love my wife or I love my, uh, my husband. But then you kind of ask questions and then you find out, you know, if you say you love your husband or you say you love your wife, then wh- why can you not thank them, right, for cooking for you? Or why can you not take the effort to listen to that person at the end of the day? Or why is it you cannot remember their birthday or celebrate the anniversary, right? Why is it you cannot bother to spend time together? Because real love is shown in action, right? I mean, you can say you love someone, but if you, if you don't show an action, then is it really genuine, real love? And in the same way, we can say, oh, you know, Jesus is my saviour. But 
is it real genuine faith unless it is shown in your actions, right? You can say, Jesus is Lord, right? Jesus is Lord. But if you don't obey your king, if you don't serve your king, then are you really following your king? So at the end of the day, as we look at today's passage, it's a real eye-opener for us. Because these are not my words, right? This is not Andrew Ong's parable, right? This is Jesus' parable, and this is what Jesus is saying. And that's what he's saying real faith is and real following of the Lord Jesus is. Is it really seen in action in the way that you live your life? Let's bow our heads and go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that the words of your Son need to strike powerfully in our lives because it has eternal consequences. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. But help us to really ask ourselves whether we have welcomed and received Jesus into our lives with saving faith, whether our lives are transformed, whether our faith is seen in action. Dear Father, Jesus is the King. He will return one day and it will be sudden like lightning. On that day, dear Father, help us to see that all of us need here to hear the words of Jesus. Well done, good servant. You have been trustworthy and faithful with the things I've given you. Dear Father, if we say with our lips, Jesus is our Lord, then help us to live that out in our lives, to do his work, to do the things that matter to him, to serve him faithfully. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hi everyone, in the interest of time, we will not be having our discussion uh, during the service, but you can take down these two questions and have a chat over tea. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.